You know, if you've been with us in our study of Galatians, we know that Paul would write this letter to the churches of Galatia. It's a number of churches that he established on his first missionary journey, um, Derby, Lystra, Iconium. And in establishing those churches, he was going to the Gentiles. Gentiles is non-Jewish believers. And they're beginning to really enjoy their newfound faith in Christ and uh, hearing the gospel message. But then something happened. And we know that it would be the legalists or those who were called Judaizers, the Jewish believers, some of them, that were still bound up with legalism. And they were coming in behind Paul's ministry. And they were given a message that it's not just faith in Jesus Christ, but you have to be circumcised and put yourself under the law of Moses. We know that from Acts chapter 15. So Paul is writing to these, these young Christians, to these churches of Galatia. And we see the urgency of his writing to them. He says that I marvel that you're turning away from the gospel to another, which is not the gospel. There are those who are coming along and troubling you, um, and you're deserting the gospel of Christ. And what Paul is doing is he's getting them established once again in the one true gospel. And that gospel, the source of that gospel, didn't come from man. Paul's saying, I didn't make it up. It came from Christ. And then in chapter 2, as we begin to move into this chapter, we see that he begins to write his manifesto because he is relaying something that is very important for you and I to consider, and that is that I stand firm and defend the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes people will say to you and to me, wouldn't it have been great to be a part of the early church in the first century, to see the miracles and the power displayed and revival that has taken place, to see the apostles? And I understand that, but we need to also understand that there was problems in the early church as we read the epistles, problems that are still uh, in the church today. And part of it was another gospel that was being brought to them. You need to put yourself under legalism and circumcision and the law and all of this. Today may come as a social gospel or the prosperity gospel or perhaps performance, whatever the case may be. So once again, we are being established in the one true gospel that is brought to us by the Lord Jesus Christ through the word of God. And then also we can defend it as well. And we don't have to be swayed by others. You see, Paul, as he gives his manifesto here, and he speaks about after his conversion, how he went to Arabia. He went to Damascus, and there they threatened to kill him as he went into the synagogue preaching Christ. He would then go to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles. They're kind of holding them out at arm's length. It would be Barnabas that came along and said, listen, Paul's conversion is real. And the reason that they were holding them out as arm's length, as most of you know, is because he persecuted the church very heavily. So Paul then is sent to Tarsus where he's learning to make tents for a period of about seven years. And then revival breaks out among the Gentiles, that is the non-Jewish believers. They're in Antioch of Syria. And Barnabas goes and finds Paul and brings them back and says, hey, let's teach these new Gentile believers. And then they would leave eventually as Acts chapter 14 declares to us on that first missionary journey. And Paul, as he's writing, he said after a time that me and Barnabas and Titus would go up and meet the leaders in Jerusalem. And Paul is saying to them that uh, I've communicated them the gospel that I am given to the Gentiles, and I would meet with those. 
who were of reputation in verse 2 of chapter 2 that we saw last week. And we end it with him saying that, but for those who seem to be of something, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. So Paul, at the beginning of the chapter, he's not really naming names, but he's saying that, listen, God shows personal favoritism to no one. He says those who have, have you know, highly esteemed, a good reputation, I want up to see. He doesn't name them, but I think he kind of does. He tells us who he was meeting with as we're going to continue and pick up our text at verse 7. It's Cephas, uh, Peter, and James, and, and John that he met with. The leaders there that had such, uh, you know, influence to the Christians, even the Gentile Christians, by their actions and what they were teaching. So Paul says, I'm not going to be swayed by them. I'm going to defend the gospel. And the important application for you and for me is that you and I, we want to defend the gospel because there's a lot of voices that are out there. And we can be swayed by those who seem to be highly esteemed of reputation. We can be swayed away from the gospel, uh, away from the truth of God's word. And that's what was happening 2,000 years ago. And it can happen t- today. So as Paul's writing to them, he, he's writing for a purpose because we're going to see that he confronts those Judaizers and he even confronts Peter and Barnabas for their hypocrisy in not fellowshipping with the Gentile believers. So Paul here, as he writes, he says, if man comes up with a teaching, if it contradicts what God has declared, it doesn't really matter because God is true. Let every man be a liar, as Paul would write in Romans chapter 3. And if God says one thing, his word declares one thing, declares the gospel, then man comes up with another gospel or something that is contrary to the truth of God's word. It doesn't matter if they're a high reputation. doesn't matter if they're a powerful person. doesn't matter if they're very popular. Then let God be true. Let every man be a liar. And as I mentioned to you, I think that because there's so many voices that are out there in the world today... You can watch endless hours of YouTubes and and this teaching and listen to this guy who's very, very popular. But we need to test the spirits to see if they're true. And we need to stick to the word of God and we need to defend the gospel message and then speak that truth and love to others. So let's pick up our text now as we read in verse 7 of Galatians chapter 2. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter. So that word uncircumcised is just speaking of Gentile believers that Paul and and Barnabas, they were going to focus on ministering to them. And then Peter was going to focus and James and John to the Jewish uh, believers and those in Jerusalem to the circumcised. In verse 8, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me towards the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, so he names these guys, and I think that's who he's talking about, those of reputation, those who are pillars of the faith, those who were uh, esteemed highly. When they seemed to be uh, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. And they desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. So it was Peter and Cephas, whenever you read the name Cephas in the New Testament, speaking of Peter, James and John, 
Those who had been ministering in Jerusalem remembered the gospel which spread from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And most of the early Christians in the first few years of the church that grew from the day of Pentecost when Peter would preach and 3,000 got saved, most of the early Christians were Jewish believers. But now they're seeing that the gospel is spreading to the Gentiles. And so Paul and Barnabas and Titus hear the leadership there in Jerusalem They said to Paul that we recognize the grace that has been given to you, that you have the same gospel as we do. In other words, we don't want any of the believers, whether Gentile or Jews, to think that there's two different gospels. There's one for the Jews and there's one for the Gentiles. We agree on the one gospel, the gospel of grace. Paul and Barnabas were received by the apostles and James, the half-brother of Jesus. And Paul, you guys go to the Gentiles. Our ministry is going to be to the Jews, that is to the circumcised. So we're brothers in the Lord. We are preaching the same and only gospel. God has called you guys in Antioch to establish that as the missionary church that's going to go out to the Gentiles. And then we're going to remain here in Jerusalem, and we're going to preach to the Jews. But let's agree to also remember the poor. And Paul affirms that. And Paul had a real uh, special heart to give to those Christians in Jerusalem that were going through persecution and going through famine. And we see the famine visit of Acts chapter 11, where Barnabas and Paul brought an offering to the Christians there in Jerusalem. But also later on in his ministry is he would gather an offering from the churches of of Macedonia and Achaia that he also took to the Christians in Jerusalem. And I believe that Paul had a special heart for them. And the reason was is because he did persecute the church very heavily. That he caused havoc on the church and had a special heart for those believers in Jerusalem. And he wanted to send a message that we Gentile believers, that we care about you guys. And we're one in Christ. And, and we're going to bring help to you to help solidify that, that, that message of there's no separation between Jew and Gentile anymore. And we're going to come and give to you because we care for you and we're all a part of the body of Christ. So Paul here defending grace to the church corporately. Now he's going to tell of his confrontation with Peter personally regarding the acceptance of the Gentiles. Let's read verse 11. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Now keep in mind as we read these verses, what we had read previously, that Paul is writing, he's telling how Peter, John, and James... They've they've recognized each other's ministry. Matter of fact, we saw that it was actually Peter that was the first one to go to the Gentiles. You read about that in Acts chapter 10. You see, Peter is in Joppa, which is the modern-day city of Tel Aviv. He's overlooking the Mediterranean Sea, and he has a vision of a sheet that comes down and all kinds of animals. They, They were the unclean animals described in the Old Testament. And he hears a voice that says, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter responded by saying, No, I'm not going to do that because I've never eaten anything unclean. He has that vision three times. And it is the Lord that would say to Peter, 
that Peter, what God has cleansed, you must not call common or unclean. And the Lord was getting Peter, his heart prepared for a couple guys that would show up there where Peter was staying at the Tanner's house and knock on the door and say, will you come with us up the coast to Caesarea where, uh, where uh, Cornelius, the Roman centurion, his family, want to hear from you, Peter. So he goes up there. He goes into the home of Cornelius. He gives the gospel. They get saved. So that's really where the gospel begins with the Gentiles, was there in Caesarea with Cornelius and his family. Chapter 11 of the book of Acts, Peter goes up to Jerusalem, and, and the brethren there, who are mostly Jewish believers, they said, we can't believe that you actually went into the home of a Gentile and ate with them and gave the gospel. And Peter defends the gospel of grace. And they rejoice in the Lord because they're beginning to realize at that time that the wall of separation is being torn down. That this thing called the church is going to consist of both Jew and Gentiles. And salvation is extended to the Gentiles, even though the Old Testament prophecies would speak of that, that the Gentiles would see the light, uh, the light of salvation. So they're sorting all of this out. And as you think about Peter beginning to give the gospel to the Gentiles, you would think, okay, this is a settled issue with Peter. God saving the Gentiles, the doctrine of grace. Peter gives Paul the right hand of fellowship. But then Peter, he makes a trip up to Antioch. And as he's there, initially everything was okay. He would fellowship with the Gentile believers. And, and Barnabas was there, and Paul is there. And then certain men that were associated with James, these legalists, these uh, Judaizers, would come up. And they ended up influencing Peter. And Barnabas was pulled into it as well. And what happened was that Peter and, and Barnabas, they separated themselves and would not eat with the Gentile believers. They refused to fellowship with them. When you read in the, particularly the New Testament, but all throughout the scriptures, that when somebody ate together, it was a powerful picture of fellowship. That's what it symbolized, that there's a oneness that is here. And we kind of have that even today. Uh, last night, the ladies who were able to come to the chili supper, there was great food, chili and apple pie, but also there was sweet fellowship that happened with the ladies. They were able to talk and visit. And that's why we encourage you when we have, you know, these men breakfasts and ladies breakfasts and other times, pie social that we're going to have on Thanksgiving Eve come because it's not just eating pie. It's not just eating chili or having a breakfast, but there's time of fellowship that we can have. And especially on Sunday morning when we're shuffling people in and out in three services, that is the time for you to be able to fellowship with others. And, of course, a lot of times as relationships grow, you're inviting people over to your house, right, to eat. And you don't just sit down and say, okay, eat your dinner and we'll see you later. It's a time to, you know, to really talk and to visit and to fellowship and, and to get to know each other. Well, that's the picture here. And here's Peter. He's up there in Antioch. Everything's all right. And all of a sudden, these other guys come up that are associated with James and these legalists and Judaizers, and they, they pull away. Uh, Peter does. And then 
Barnabas does the same thing, and, the, and these guys that are legalists. And Paul says, I confronted Peter to his face for his hypocrisy, not fellowshipping with the Gentiles. Didn't want these guys to, to see him, these legalists with the Gentiles, eating with them. He, they're going to go back and tell James. And Barnabas, of course, the same thing. And Paul confronted Peter. And by separating themselves, it would be Peter and and Barnabas from the Gentiles, they were treating them as though they really weren't Christians. And Peter is a pillar in the faith, a leader in the early church. Peter would have tremendous influence in the church. But this influence right now is done in a very negative way by his example, separating himself from the Gentiles. His attitude, being afraid of these these Judaizers. What they would think. And Paul said that Peter and Barnabas, your actions is hypocrisy. And you're setting a terrible example that others will follow. Now one commentator said this, that the sins of the teacher are the teachers of sin. You remember in chapter 1, if you've read Galatians or been with us in our study, that it was Paul that wrote, do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. And we read, in, as I men- mentioned of it already in this chapter, chapter 2, from those who seem to be something makes no difference to me. So there's a reason why Paul is writing that. And the reason is, is because he's going to stand for truth and he's defending the grace that has been poured out on the Gentile Christians. And Peter, Peter, you are a pillar in the early church and you won't even eat with them because you fear man over fearing God. And it is a very strong rebuke on behalf of Paul towards Peter and Barnabas. And I think it's important to really stop and and take note of this. Peter fearing these Judaizers, so he withdrew from the Gentile believers. Peter being a a pillar of the faith, I'm sure that when he comes to Antioch, that the Christians there, the, the believers are so excited. Peter's coming. The one who walked with Jesus. Peter, the one given the the keys to the kingdom. Who saw incredible miracles. Jesus raising the dead and feeding the multitudes. Peter, he saw the empty tomb and the resurrected Lord. He watched Jesus ascend into heaven. And then on the day of Pentecost that he preached powerfully and 3,000 were saved and the church was born. He was one that stood firmly uh, uh, against the religious council that brought him and the, and the apostles and said, stop spreading the name of Jesus in Jerusalem. You filled the whole city with your doctrine. And it was Peter that was full of the Holy Spirit. And he said, we're going to obey God. And the apostles were taken and they were beaten And they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for his namesake. He went to the house of Cornelius and gave the gospel. And then he defended that to the brethren in Jerusalem. But here, once again, he's afraid. I say once again because there was another time he was afraid. Remember in the courtyard of Caiaphas. 
that when Jesus was taken before the religious council in the first trial that he would go through, Peter's there in the courtyard. He's warming himself at the fire. He had followed the Lord from a distance. He's trying to be brave. He had told the Lord that night that I won't run away from you. I won't deny you. Uh, These other guys might, but not me. I'll die for you. And there's Peter. He's trying to muster up the courage. And Peter, he was a man that showed courage. I mean, he's the one that stepped out of the boat and walked on water. I mean, who does that? And yet he did that. He, he said, I will come, Lord. We know that Peter was the one that in the garden when they arrested Jesus, they took out a sword and he got Malchus' ear, the servant of the high priest. And Jesus said, put away the sword, Peter. Don't you know that I'm going to take on the cup of suffering and death? It took courage for Peter to do that. And he's trying to do it. He's trying to do it. And all of a sudden, he's there at the fire And a servant girl comes up to him and says, you're one of them. You know him. And Peter begins to curse and he swore. And then he heard the sound of the rooster. And he went away and he wept bitterly. I want to remind you and me that sometimes in that area where we think we're strong, if we're not depending upon the Lord, we can end up failing. We become weak. Don't think, well, you know, everything's good with my marriage and with the kids and with the business and with my health and everything else. I don't need to pray about those things. Listen, you don't want to become one that you're dependent upon your own self and your own strength. I got this, Lord. I don't need to give it to you. I don't need to pray about it. Because in those areas where you think that you're strong, you can end up failing. And the enemy knows that. And he'll come after you in that area. Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. And where did he fail? He got mad and he struck the rock. And he yelled at the people and he misrepresented the Lord. Peter here, all of a sudden he's afraid. The one who stood for the gospel, who stood for the Lord. And what can happen is, is the same thing happens to us. When we, all of a sudden, we're we're walking with the Lord we're growing in the word, we're, we're established in the gospel, and all of a sudden somebody comes along and it causes us to withdraw from people, brothers and sisters, from being in fellowship, being committed to the things of the Lord and walking with the Lord. And that happens so oftentimes. I don't think that Peter believes that it's by circumcision. He knows it's by faith alone. But his behavior was being fearful of others. And if that happens to you and to me, maybe it's a co-worker, maybe it's a boss, maybe it's a family member, a neighbor, somebody that all of a sudden is of high reputation, very popular, going to sway us away. Listen, particularly young people. Boyfriend, girlfriend. I don't want to stand for the gospel and stand for Christ because I'd rather live in sin and in compromise because you're fearing them. You're fearing what might happen rather than trusting the Lord. Do you understand what I'm saying? And this is why it's so important for us to consider this. Peter, for some reason, he's afraid of, you know, what's going to happen. And the Bible says that the fear of man is a big snare. So the problem is this. If you fear man over fearing God, 
it will always lead to compromise and hypocrisy. And if you want to be healthy spiritually, to be effective in ministering to others, and to lead people in a godly way, and I know that you do, I know that you do, with your children, your grandchildren, family members, with friends and others, you want to lead them in a godly way, then you need to be an example one who stands on the truth and you speak the truth in love. And if there is a fear of man, there is the potential and likelihood that you're going to lead others astray. If you're concerned about what others might think, being influenced by others over God, I want them to like me. I don't want them to think I'm too religious. You know, so I think I'll compromise and, and go with the guys after work. And we're just going to go down and have a little fun and do a little drinking or partying or whatever. You know, watch some things on, you know, the tube or whatever. Going to go and party with some friends. Because you fear people over fearing God. And I want them to like me. It will lead to compromise and hypocrisy. And my hope for all of us here at Calvary Chapels that we would say that I fear you, Lord, over fearing man. And I want to stand for you and not be afraid and walk with you. And as he continues, but when I saw in verse 14 that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? And we who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. Peter is rebuked publicly. Peter, you have recognized the truth of the gospel. And these Judaizers are not being straightforward about the truth. And your actions, Peter and Barnabas, are agreeing with them. You know that we are justified by faith, and the law will not justify you. And there's a sting and rebuke of Peter. Peter, listen, you've brought the gospel to the Gentiles. You know that you're not saved by circumcision and the keeping of the law. But rather, a man is justified by faith. So, Peter, how is it that you won't fellowship or eat with the Gentiles and expect them to live as a Jew? You are given a message. Unless you live as a Jew and keep the law, you're not saved. You know that it's wrong, Peter. And he did. Notice that Paul writes, we know. You and I, Peter, that a man is not justified by the law, but by faith. Now, verse 16 is one of the most important verses that we have in this epistle because the word uh, justified occurs for the very first time. It's a legal term, and it literally means to be declared righteous. So Paul uses that term to tell how a person is declared righteous before God, and it is not by the law. It is not by the law. The law will not declare you righteous. A man is not justified by the works of the law. The law in and of itself is righteous. The problem is we're not. And it won't declare us righteous because we break the law, every single one of us. 
And later in this epistle, Paul's going to explain to us the purpose of the law is to show us that we break it, we can't keep it, and it declares us guilty, and that it is a tutor, a schoolmaster to point us to Jesus Christ. We need the Savior of the world because we're all lawbreakers. So don't put yourself under something that's not going to save you. Amen? And there are Christians today that will put themselves, they'll say, well, I don't believe in the law, but they'll put themselves under performance. And if I'm not performing in this way, then I'm not really saved. I have people all the time that come to me and say, I don't think I'm saved because, um, you know, I just had a bad day or I had a bad week. Or I'm so grateful that when we sin, we confess our sins and he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And I'll ask them, do you believe that Jesus is Lord? That he died for your sins. Have you asked him into your heart as Lord and Savior? Yes. Then you're saved. Don't complicate it. And then you ask the Lord to help you. Because we still are in this body and in the flesh and we struggle. And he desires for us to walk in holiness and in righteousness. And Paul talks about that in a little bit. I need you, Lord, the Savior of the world. You remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that you can say that you haven't committed murder, but if you hate another without a cause, you've committed murder. You can say that you haven't committed adultery, but if you lust after another, then you committed adultery. And then Jesus went on to say that your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And I just wondered what the disciples thought when they heard that. What do you mean our righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees? There's no one more righteous than them. That was the whole point. The whole point is you need me. Because I'll change your heart. You need the Savior of the world who came and died for you and took your sins upon himself. It is David that would write in Psalm 143, For in your sight no one lives in righteousness. And you are declared righteous before God by faith in Christ Jesus. So why are you Judaizers telling these Gentiles that they must be circumcised or they must be kosher to be justified when it is their faith in Christ Jesus that justifies them? And then in verse 17, But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, that we ourselves also are found sinners and Is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For I build again those things which I destroyed. I make myself a transgressor. So the Judaizers would fire back at Paul. Since you are justified by faith, not by the law, not by works, all that's going to do is is encourage sinful living. A person can just go out and do what they please, even though they believe in Christ. They're not doing good works. And that is always the charge of the legalists. It it was the charge in Paul's day. It's still today. You have to emphasize the law. You have to put people under the law. I've been told by others, you better speak the law to your congregation, pastor, or you're going to have a carnal church. They're all going to be a bunch of loose cannons. The doctrine of grace does not mean that Christ is a minister or approves sin, verse 17. Do we understand that? Now remember that Paul is rebuking and confronting Peter, Paul, the Judaizers. They're on one side of the room, and what they're saying is is that Jesus is not real enough. Listen, this is important, that the cross isn't sufficient enough to save you. 
that he isn't powerful enough to change you. So you got to put yourself under works, the yoke of legalism. And Paul here makes the case in verse 18, if a believer would return to the law after trusting Christ for salvation, the law is going to demonstrate that you are a sinner, a transgressor. And to say that I will return again to the law looks at Jesus hanging on the cross and taking the punishment for your sin, the punishment that we deserve, and the wrath of God that we deserve was put on him. And it says, that's all nice, but that is not enough. That when Jesus died on the cross and said, it is finished, nope, it's not finished. That you have to complete it. That you have to do something to earn that salvation. Get circumcised in Paul's day. Eat kosher. Keep the, keep the law. Keep the Sabbath. There are those today that come along and say, you're not saved if you don't keep the Sabbath. You're not saved if you don't get baptized. And Jesus saying that it is finished is not true. That he didn't complete the work. And providing forgiveness and salvation. Rising from the grave, giving us a living hope. For I, through the law, as Paul writes, died to the law, that I might live to God. This is so important. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I am dead to the law. He wrote the same thing in Romans chapter 7. Paul says that as long as a woman is married to a man, she is bound by law to be his wife. But if he passes away, then she's free to marry another. And so my brother, and the point he's making is, you have also become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you might be married to another, and that is to him, Christ, who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. It is not that I have died to the law or been free from the law that I might live any way that I... I want to live after my flesh, after sin. I have been freed from the law because it cannot save me. And it shows that I am a sinner in need of a Savior. I am free and dead to the law so I can be married or joined to another, and that's to Christ. And it is him that lives in me. Christ is in you. He's in you. And I live by faith in Christ, faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm dead to the law so I can live for him, be joined to him, that he can live in my heart, who loved me and gave himself for me. I have been crucified with Christ. That is, I'm dead to the law, and it's no longer I that live, my self-righteous, self-centered life. But I live for Christ who lives in me and how I live for him. Do we understand that? I'm not saved so I can live after the world. He brought us out of the world. I'm not saved so I can walk in darkness. He brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light. But I'm a new creature in Christ. He gives me a new heart. And I have a newness of life. And should I continue in sin that grace may abound? No. We're dead to all that stuff. Amen. And you walk with him, and you enjoy him, and you live for him. Because Christ dwells in your heart. 
and you die to yourself and you walk in the Spirit. I think a lot of Christians don't enjoy their walk with the Lord because they do base it on performance. And listen, I want to live for Christ. I get convicted, and conviction is a good thing. It comes from the Holy Spirit that draws to the Lord. But there's no condemnation. That comes from the enemy to push you away from the Lord. Okay? There's a big difference. There is now no condemnation. There is now. Now means like right now where you're sitting. Condemnation to those who are in Christ. Live for him. Enjoy him. Walk with him. That you may have that peace that passes understanding. That joy unspeakable. His wisdom and his strength. Isn't it wonderful being a Christian that we don't have to be caught up in all the junk and the deception of the world? Christ lives in me. And there is a huge difference between I have to and I've got to than I get to. I get to. And I want to live for him. So as Paul finishes the chapter here, he says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much that we can be here in this place and be reminded of the gospel of grace, one gospel that has the power to save Oh, Lord, we are so blessed, and we do come with thanksgiving for an incredible provision by Jesus who came to this world. And in a few moments, we're going to be handed the communion elements. We're going to remember Jesus' death and suffering for us. And communion is for the believer. It's not just for if you belong to this church. It's for any believer in Christ. But if you're here and you're not a believer or anybody who's even listening, today is the day of salvation for you to come to Christ, for you to give your heart to him. You cannot save yourself. You can't be good enough. You can't perform enough. It is by grace alone, the unmerited favor of God and faith alone, that as you come, and recognize your need to be forgiven because you've fallen short of the glory of God and recognize that Jesus died for you. Listen, he died for you. He loves you. And when he took that cross and walked down the narrow streets of Jerusalem to that place of execution, he was thinking about you. He did it for you. And I am thoroughly convinced he knew that you would be here on this Sunday in November 2022. And he says, I love you and I've provided forgiveness and it is finished if you come in faith and you repent, quit going the direction you're going and turn to Jesus and give your heart and life to him. You can sincerely pray that Jesus, I come and I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on the cross for me. You're alive. Forgive me and be my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you for this, this living hope that we have in Christ.
And Lord, I do pray that I would know you and walk with you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name. And as the communion elements are now being passed out, that we would just continue and on, just an attitude of worship as we prepare to take the communion elements together. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. As I mentioned that the, the ushers are going to hand out the communion elements. There's two tabs to get to the bread and to the cup and prepare for communion, and then we'll take up the elements together. Jesus was with his disciples for the last time in that upper room. He would take the bread, and after he had given thanks, he take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So let's take the bread together. Father, we thank you for the giving of your son who came to this world and went through tremendous sufferings that we can't fully understand. He was beaten, flogged, 
cat of nine tails that were pounded on his head, lacerated his scalp, his beard was pulled out. Tremendous pain, disfigurement. Even Pilate said, look, look what you've done to him, the man. But he did it because of his love for us. And in the same manner, Jesus would take that cup in that upper room. And he would say, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Let's do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So let's take the cup together. And so they pinned him to that cross on a hill called Calvary. And he bled into the ground and he hung between heaven and earth. And he did cry out, it is finished. And he breathed his last and he rose from the grave to conquer sin and death, to prove that he's the son of God. And now he brings us hope and forgiveness and eternal life. This new covenant that we belong to is the covenant where Christ lives in us. And so, Lord, we thank you. And I pray that as we go out of this place, we wouldn't fear man. We wouldn't fear others or be swayed by others, but we would allow you to truly be the Lord of our lives, to be established in truth and in the gospel and to speak that to others. Lord, we don't do it with a contempt. We don't do it in a hateful way. We do it in a way that, Lord, that we bring the light of the gospel to others and the truth of your word, that they might be free from the world and sin. Thank you for today. I pray that you... Would the Lord just bless all your people as we go our way. And whatever we go through this week, that we know that you're with us and that you care for us and you have provided for us. In Jesus' name.